Welcome to The Athletics of Business, a podcast about how the traits and behaviors of elite athletes and remarkable business leaders frequently intersect. The real stories and hard lessons to help you level up your leadership and performance. Now your host, Ed Molitor. Welcome back to another episode of The Athletics of Business podcast. I am your host and CEO of the Molitor Group, Ed Molitor. And I couldn't be more thrilled to introduce you to today's special guest. And, and please know that there is not any introduction that I could do that would do him justice. So I'm going to try to make this quick, set the table a little bit, and then get out of the way and let you listen to just an amazing conversation. So today's special guest is Reed Ryan, who is in his eighth season with the Houston Astros. So if his name sounds familiar, it should. Reed served as the Astros president of business operations from 2013 through 2019. And the things that they accomplished during that time period is absolutely amazing. You have to keep in mind when he joined in 2013, it's funny because Reed talks about it's better to be lucky than to be good. And he thought the timing of his joining the Astros was perfect. But when he joined, they had back to back to back 100 loss seasons. That's over 300 losses in three seasons. It's amazing what they've done. And this season, Reed is moving into the role of executive advisor, utilizing his 22 years of professional baseball experience, pretty cool, and sharing that with the Astros executives. His tenure as Astros president included five consecutive years of breaking the franchise's all-time revenue high watermark and moving into the upper echelon of Major League Baseball's most successful clubs. And we're going to really get into that during our conversation. Prior to joining the Astros, Reed was a founder and CEO of both the Corpus Christi Hooks and the Round Rock Express minor league franchises, both of which every year are two of the top franchises in minor league attendance, stadium satisfaction, and franchise value. Shortly after coming on board in Houston, Reed helped bring Corpus Christi Hooks into the fold as owned and operated affiliate of the Houston Astros, whereas the Round Rock Express, as of 2019, are now the AAA affiliate of the Houston Astros. Now, let me just touch on one more thing before we get into a couple of things we talk about. Reed's history with Texas baseball obviously goes back decades. During the 1980s, he was a bat boy for the Astros, while his father and Hall of Famer, Nolan, was an all-star pitcher in the Astrodome. Reed later pitched at the University of Texas and then TCU, playing a part in two Southwest Conference titles at Texas in 91 and TCU in 94. Reed went on to pitch in the minor league for two seasons in 94-95 in the Rangers system after being selected in the 17th round of the June 1994 draft. And one of the things we talk about inside of this conversation is how Reed believes that every life has different seasons and every life has different chapters. And one of the big changes in his life was when he was finally cut from the Rangers system and the direction that his life and his professional career took. And Reed is such an incredible individual to talk to because he talks about how he embraces the opportunity to work in professional baseball. And he sees it as an honor and a privilege because of what the game baseball means to so many people. Okay. And he talks about joy and bringing joy to his or the members of his organization, as well as the customers' lives. Now, He's also going to jump into why he is so intentional about looking at problems from everyone's perspective and how that helps him make strong decisions that are fair to everyone. And we'll dig into where that mindset comes from. And there's some really cool stories about his grandfather, about his dad that really have led him to where he is today and what he stands for. We're going to talk about, and this is a really cool story, when he first decided he wanted to start the Round Rock Express, when he decided he wanted to have his own minor league club, how he created a compelling vision for the people of Round Rock during the process of securing a home for the team that he had purchased 
from Jackson, Mississippi, and, and how they created a major league stadium on a minor league scale. I can go on and on. I'm going to let you listen to this incredible conversation that I had with Reed Ryan. Enjoy. Reed, thank you so much for joining me today on the Athletics of Business podcast. I am really fired up to have you here with us. Well, thank you, Ed. I'm happy to be here and excited for the day. Let's do it. Well, let's jump right into it. Tell us about a day in the life of Reed Ryan. You have so many different things going on. You wear several different hats. Just fill, a, fill the listeners in. Yeah. So I'll tell you, this has been an interesting week. For the last uh, seven years, I've been the president of business operations for the Houston Astros. And 2020, I am transitioning over to a role of executive advisor to our owner, Jim Crane. And so uh, with that comes being at the ballpark during this COVID craziness and, uh, you know, watching this series with the Mariners this week with nobody in the ballpark. And for a sports executive, it's really strange to be a part of something where you're accustomed to seeing people out there and it's nothing but a baseball game going on with about 20 executives and front office people up in the boxes. So that's been a really, really strange week. But in my normal day, Ed, I am juggling a lot of different things. I've, I've been an entrepreneur. You know, I've started teams. I've started a bank. Uh, I work in family business. And then I've obviously been a hired gun with the Houston Astros. And I'm still actively doing all that. So it's really time management every day as to what am I trying to accomplish and how am I going to knock it out. That's amazing. And let's, let's take a step back and talk about the game. What was the vibe like? What was the energy level like? Was it a little bit for the players? For you, it was a little awkward at first, like there was nothing else going on but the baseball game itself. Well, and, you know, I'm a purist, so I love the baseball game. Um, so the ballparks, it's all about making sure people don't come in contact with the players. And so it doesn't matter what stadium you're in. If you're in Chicago, whether it was uh, Cellular One, Comiskey, or, you know, Wrigley, whatever that is, the lower bowl is all blocked off. So the only people in there are a couple of foul ball runners and a few cameramen, and that's mm -hmm. it. Everybody else is kind of up on the sort of the press box level, to be honest with you, <clears throat> away from the field. And people are watching on TV, but you feel like you're cheating folks because everybody wants to get out and be a right. part of something right now, but they can't. And so uh, we're, we're giving them a great product at home on TV. Well, and it has to be interesting for you because – as I've gotten to know you through different folks and through reading some amazing articles and watching some videos, the big thing that you bring to everybody, whether it's baseball or whatever you do, is joy, right? You love to connect with people. You believe the game of baseball brings so much joy to people's lives. Matter of fact, I have here, I love the Dell Diamond dedication plaque that you wrote. Okay? Oh, yeah. And by the way, I watched that video about 20 times. I was waiting for Kevin Costner to walk out, you know, almost like a Feel the Dreams moment. That was awesome. That was, that was an awesome video. But you say this facility was built so children could have a place to dream, families could gather and enjoy a summer night together, and everyone could experience the joy and thrill of America's national pastime, baseball. And that kind of sums you up in the way you go about your business. Can you talk about that? Yeah. So I've been in uh, the sports business over 20 years, and I have a simple philosophy, Ed, that, look, it's an honor and a privilege to get to work in professional baseball. And the reason why is because what it said on the plaque, people leave their problems at the door when they come to a ballpark. They come in and they want to have three hours of fun with the people they love, whether it's their kids, their spouse, their church group, their little league team. And they just want to come enjoy what is the true uniter of all communities. Uh, and that is love of family and love of community. And what's neat about our sport, think of everything going on in the world today. 
riots in cities and, and you have all of these different constituencies out there. But yet, what brings a city together more than anything? Mm-hmm. You know, I watched the Bulls documentary when they were winning championships, Chicago. Man, everybody's high-fiving and hugging each other, and there's nothing but yeah. love and joy in the city. And it's how it was in Houston in 2017 with the World Series. And so whether it's major league or minor league or basketball or baseball, we have to understand that it's a privilege and an honor to get to provide that to people. Because few folks go to a job every day where they're literally bringing joy to people's lives. And then the flip side to that is when you're dealing with these athletes that are at the very pinnacle of their profession, they've worked so hard and so long to get there to be able to see that drama play out on the field every day. Uh, it's inspiring to people. And so you get instant feedback in this business every day from your customers, from the product you're putting on the field. It's like a Greek tragedy sometimes. And uh, you get to experience the highs and lows with, with these athletes. And so I just think there's nothing better in the world. It's awesome. And something I'd like to come back to here in a little bit is how what you've built you know, with Round Rock and how you compare what you've done with the Astros since 2013. Because it really, it really truly is phenomenal. You think about it, didn't they have like back-to-back-to-back 100-loss seasons? Not 100-win, but 100-loss seasons yeah. before you moved into your role there as president of business operations? Yeah. So, you know, I came in at a really good time. And look, sometimes it's better to be lucky than good. And I was really lucky with the timing that I came in. Uh, Jim Crane, our owner, was rebuilding the organization and really tearing it down to the studs and rebuilding it. And so that gave me an opportunity to come in and put together a plan that would be able to give us a winning team. And so I'm really proud of what we did. We went from being one of the lowest revenue teams in baseball to, in 2019, being number five in all of baseball. And, um, you know, that's playing up there with the big boys of the Yankees and the Dodgers and, you know, the Cubs. The Red Sox, you know, those are kind of, and we passed the Giants, those are kind of the five, you know, top revenue clubs and Houston's right there with them now. And so we've built this incredible fan base. What I'm really proud of is that we laid out a plan and it was a gutsy, really, you know, lofty plan. And we did everything we said we were going to do. And so when you're going in and you're raising people's prices and you're changing the dynamic of ticketing and the dynamic of sponsorship and all of the things that, that we're doing in a stadium. And you're telling them, don't worry, trust us, we're going to spend it on players. I think a lot of fans thought, eh, these guys are just, you know, going to do the Donald Sterling. Right. And, Digging in our pockets. Digging their pockets. Yeah. But when we signed Altuve and Bregman and Verlander and all these guys, Springer, you know, to long-term deals, and then we won and won a lot. People said, wow, these guys really did do what they said they were going to do. So you build up this confidence in the brand, and, and an amazing venue. I, I've driven by it. I've never had the pleasure of being in the ballpark. I have a lot of friends from my time down in Texas that are Astros fans that, you know, they, they say it's no Wrigley, it's better than Wrigley, uh, the whole experience. And then you had the issue with the science stealing. And I don't want to get into that. What I'd like to get into is how do you rebuild? Because you've done so much incredible work, right? You've done all this work and all these people have completely bought in and just love what you have built. How do you rebuild and um, earn again that trust in the brand after something like that happens? Well, so let me take one step back. So I used to tell people when I got to Houston, I had two jobs. One job was inside the four walls of Minute Maid Park. And that really involved the employees and the business plan and the culture that we were building there. Mm-hmm. And then I had another job that was outside the four walls, and that was selling our story to the public that we just talked about. 
And so a lot of ways, I think that same principle applies for what happened with sign stealing or any of the things that are out there. In Houston, people don't really care. In Texas, they don't really care. Outside, it's the Yankee fans, the Dodger fans, people like that that care. And obviously, that goes to the core of sort of, you know, the joy of sport, how people become tribal and they pick their teams, stick with those teams, and they're very passionate about it. The reality of the situation was today, sign stealing is not illegal. It's part of the game. It happens a lot. There were no rules for electronic sign stealing back in 2017. Um, And the first that you really heard of it was that year, the Red Sox and the Yankees both got fined for using the Apple Watches and the the Diamondbacks got fined for using, uh, you know, iPads in the dugout, replays in the dugout. And so slowly over the course of 2017, the commissioner started to address some of these things. And so he kind of dropped the gauntlet of like, we're not going to have any more of this. It was around August or September. And unfortunately, our guys didn't stop. And, you know, it's a, it was a player-led initiative. Unfortunately, A.J. Hinch and Jeff Luno ended up taking the fall for what happened. And in some ways, people will always look back and say, well, you know, those guys were, were stealing signs in 2017, and it took away from what, what they did. But if you look at this team really from 15 – taking Kansas City to the brink, getting beat, and Kansas City winning the World Series. Great great series. 18, the Red Sox beating us to go win the World Series, Mm -hmm. in essence. And then last year, the Nationals winning. Game seven, this is a pretty good club and Mm -hmm. sign-stealing scandal or not. Yankees doing it or not. Red Sox doing it or not. All of these teams are elite. And so I don't think history is going to look back and say that this era of the late teens, it, it might be known as a sign stealing era, but the cream really rose to the top in that those clubs have the best players. And our, our team is one of those teams. Absolutely. So you spend this time and you're, you're building this, help build this team, help build this organization. Do you ever stop and pinch yourself? Like, you know, I used to be a bat boy down there. Okay. Granted it was in the Astrodome, but like you grew up a bat boy for the Astros and here you are as president of business operations. How cool is that? Well, I, in some ways, look, my dad was a player. So let's not forget it. It wasn't like I was just a kid that came off the street and right. was a bat boy. So it's kind of a good story. But the reality is, you know, my dad's a Hall of Fame player. And so for me, I think what I bring to the table with an organization, with sports in general, is the fact that I truly, when I look at a problem, I see it from everybody's perspective. Mm-hmm. I think about what the players and their families are going through, because I've been one of those. I think about the people like the bat boys and the folks that work in the clubhouse. I think about the fans cause I've been a fan. I've done everything from sell tickets, park cars, sell advertising, you know, work in a concession stand, you name it. I've literally done every single job there is to do in a major league baseball team. And so I think I have a perspective and an empathy that helps me make really strong decisions and decisions that are fair for everybody. That's huge. And, and I, I read somewhere, do you really give your cell phone number out to fans? Yeah, anybody that wants it. Now, do, do people take you up on the offer? Do they think you're off on one digit? Or do they actually take you up? And no. So I have a number that I've had since 2000 in Round Rock. I have a Austin 512 number. And, you know, I kind of stopped doing it after the World Series. If somebody really is a, is a season ticket holder and there's somebody right. that really needs it, I look, nothing says I care more than you saying, hey, here's my cell phone, call me if you have a problem. So 
I think the problem with today's society is people talk a good game, but their actions don't match up to their words. And so one of the things I've always tried to do is make sure my actions, you know, 100% match up to my words. And so we're really a culture of people say, let me see what you're going to do. Don't tell me what you're going to do. And so when you give somebody your number, then now there's no buffer. They can call you, they can text you, they have a problem. And I respond. And, you know, I've had people say, well, you know, look, you're giving that person, you know, as much time as you are that sponsor that's spending millions of dollars. The issue is, for me, is that I treat everyone the same and they're all important. And when you try to turn your back on the fan or the sponsor, you can't just treat everybody good. That's the deal. And that's what I try to do. And where does that come from? Where did you learn that at at an early age? Who pressed that upon you? Yeah, I think it was the way my dad was and my grandparents. You know, my my grandma, uh, my dad's mother, she used to, people say, oh, aren't you proud of your son? He just threw his fifth no-hitter or sixth no-hitter. <laughs> I'm proud of all my kids. And she treated them all the same. Um, and my dad treated everybody the same. And I think it's a Texas thing. I think it's a small town thing, is that everybody has their own set of skills and gifts and value in this world. Mm-hmm. And I just try to treat people well. That's it. I mean, it's simple. We need yeah. more of that today. It's just treat people well. You know, Reed, you're, very, you're a very positive, upbeat person. And you, you have a tendency to really see the best opportunity in all adversity and challenges. And we all have defining moments in our life. Were there some defining moments for you where all of a sudden that outlook on, on the world where adversity became opportunity and things like that? Yeah, I think I've had a lot of them. I don't think it's just one in your life. I think there's chapters of your life. Um, You know, the first chapter really was when I was a kid, my dad played for the California Angels. And summer 1969, I ended up getting run over by a car in an accident and uh, ended up spending, you know, 10 weeks in the hospital and lost my kidney and my spleen, broke my femur. And so it was one of these things where when you're a kid, no video games back then, no TV. You know, uh, it was jigsaw puzzles and and uh, and a know. lot of time to think. Yeah. <laughs> and so, look, I just made a decision. Like, you know, God has a plan for my life. When I get out of this hospital, I'm going to try to maximize every day, and you know, take the gifts He's given me and make the most of them. And so, I think the second defining moment was, you know, I'd gone to the University of Texas on a baseball scholarship, and I, and I was unhappy. I wasn't playing a lot. I wasn't making good grades. And, and I realized, look, I need to do something. If I want to be a professional player, then I need to take control of my own career and think about what's really best for me. And that was transferring to TCU in the Dallas-Fort Worth area because it gave me an opportunity to be close to my dad, who was playing with the Texas Rangers, and work with Tom House, a legendary pitching coach. And had I not done that, I wouldn't have met my wife. I wouldn't have met you know some of my best friends in life. I wouldn't have had a bunch of things happen that have shaped who I am. And so look, all of those things, probably the biggest one was getting released as a professional baseball player. I I had always wanted to be a a major league player, professional player. Uh, I got drafted, had one really good year, had one terrible year. And the next year I got released. And had I let that being released, being a failure, quote unquote failure at the game of baseball, define me and you know, move to Mexico and start renting jet skis on the beach or something, you know, I would have quit. But what that ended up doing was sparking me to go out and start the Round Rock Express, which led to starting of the Corpus Christi Hooks, which led to my dad putting a group together to buy the Texas Rangers, which led to me coming to Houston to end up being uh, the president of the Astros. And, you know, 
I have five World Series rings from 2005 till this year, 2019. And, you know, had I not got released by the Rangers, probably none of that happens. And so it's how I'm looking at what's going on now. I have people come up to me and go, ah, I can't believe you're not president of the Astros anymore. And what I tell them is like, look, awesome run, credible run, seven great years. This is my eighth year with the club. The owner, you know, wants to transition to his son taking over one day. And I respect that. I think that's great. And I'm going to do my job to try to help them transition. And the next chapter of my life is going to be incredible. And so I already know that because it's preordained and it's up to me to sort of look for the clues to figure out which path to take. Now, I've got to take you back to when you decided that uh, being a play-by-play announcer or color analyst wasn't what you wanted to do. Because you went back to school, right, after you got cut and finished up your degree? I did, yeah. So I worked for a while for Fox Sports. I did hunting and fishing shows. I did. I was on the Rangers broadcast. Right. I did Big 12 baseball. And I think Ed, that the reality was, you know, look, I love the game. I love serving others. I, I really do enjoy television because people are, you're entertaining them for three hours. But to do what I wanted to do, you almost have to have people die. And it sounds bad, but Harry Carey was a legend and he broadcast for 50, 60 years. Right. Milo Hamilton, I mean, right. you, you name him, Joe Buck, you go down Jack the brick house. Yeah. yeah. And, and these people get in their jobs, they do a good job. Fans grow an affinity for them. And so it's really hard to control your own future, as you know. And uh, luckily today with, with social media and, and, you know, all the things that are out there, it's becoming easier for people to find their audience. But I just looked around and said, look, I have a different calling. And uh, one of the things I'm really proud of is that both with the Rangers, I was able to recommend Matt Hicks, who's been on the broadcast with Eric Nadell on the radio. Mm-hmm. And then I was able to put together uh, a broadcast team here in Houston. Todd Callis and Jeff Blum and Julia Morales that now is awesome. you know rated as a top five broadcast team. Yeah. So I think those skills I got have ended up helping me talk to the fans, even though it's not me doing the talking now, and understand what is the best way to sell Astros baseball, Express baseball, Rangers baseball, Hooks baseball, whatever that is. Yeah, that is so cool. So you decide that you don't want to, well, you decide that you're not going to be on the broadcast side and you're going to go into the front office. What the Round Rock Express, take us through that journey because it wasn't something real simple like, hey, I want a minor league team. We're going to build a park here somewhere around Austin. Take us through that journey and what that was like. Yeah, so I was a player kind of in the mid-90s post-strike, and there were some, some things that happened in minor league baseball. In 1994, MLB basically came in and said, look, if you're not up to these facility standards, towns are going to lose their teams. And that really sparked the rebirth of a lot of these stadiums across the country. And so I played in some really terrible minor league cities. But I got to taste one or two new facilities. Uh, You know, Hickory, North Carolina had one. Hudson Valley, New York had one. There were a few of them that I got to take part in. uh, Lake Elsinore in California, Rancho Cucamonga, places like that. And it sparked in me an idea when I got released that I said, look, why doesn't Texas have more minor league teams? We have all this population. We love baseball. Why are there not more teams? And when I was at the University of Texas, uh, it was about the time the Diamondbacks were coming into Phoenix. And so the AAA team there, the Firebirds, was trying to find a home. And they looked at Austin, but they weren't able to get it done. And so I kind of started studying, pulling, you know, old newspaper articles from the library, like, why didn't this happen, talking to people. And I just had this epiphany one night working at the Rangers game uh, for Fox Sports. 
that, uh, hey, I think I can go start my own team. And the thrill of starting my own club, being in professional baseball, it really energized me. And, you know, 20 years later, look at everything we've been able to accomplish. It's amazing. And you had to start literally at scratch. I mean, you had to talk to the Kiwanis Club, you had to find property, everything. Yeah. So, you know, it's kind of like, how do you eat the elephant one bite at a time? Right. And so the first thing we had to do was find, is there even a team out there that can move? Because you just can't start a team. There's 30 major league teams. There's 30 AAA teams. There's 30 AA teams. So we had to see what, what league could we even be a part of. And the Texas League was the only league that was in our state, although there was only, you know, two teams, Midland or three, El Paso and San Antonio, they were in the Texas League of the eight. And so the team in Jackson, Mississippi, that just happened to be an Astros double-A club, financially was struggling and their lease was up and the owner was looking for a new place to go. And so I convinced him to sell us the club. He kept a small part of it. And so I had the team, but now we've paid 5 million bucks of which I've borrowed and raised Mm -hmm. back in the late 90s. And if I don't have a place to take this team, now I own this team in, in Jackson, Mississippi. Right. So a lot of risk, a lot of risk. But at the same time, I was talking to cities in the Austin area because Austin was the largest city in the country that didn't have a professional baseball team. And so a lot of bedroom communities and met with all the mayors and ended up settling on Round Rock, which is about 15 miles north of uh, the city of Austin and just deep baseball tradition and they were willing to partner with me on a stadium financing uh, mechanism and we put it to the voters and passed it and we were off to the races. Now you're skipping the best part of the story. Okay. The voters talk about the 10 chartered buses that you took down to San Antonio to watch uh, Jackson uh, team play. Yeah, that was fun. You know, we did a lot of things. I mean, I'm trying to be respectful of everybody's time here, but we had to sell people on what minor league baseball was. And so even though at the time San Antonio was not what we were wanting to build, we were wanting to build a major league stadium mm-hmm. on a minor league scale. Uh, these people had not been to a game. So we ended up getting 10 buses and we took them all down to San Antonio and everybody had a great time and, you know, had some beer, watched the game and had a hot dog. And these people were influencers in the community and they came back very energized. And so we started a real grassroots movement to bring baseball to the Austin market. And, you know, 20 years later, we've drawn millions and millions of fans, the level of play. Once again, it's almost like the Astro story. And everything we promised, not only did we deliver, but we went beyond it. And it's ended up being an incredible deal for the city of Round Rock because we used visitor tax, uh, hotel motel tax from out-of-town visitors. And it's been a, you know, a self-fulfilling prophecy because the city had three hotels and now it's probably got 50 hotels. It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it truly is amazing. And everything else you've gotten into, which we'll talk about here in a few minutes, but something you've done that I absolutely love. And you did it back at TCU when you identified what you wanted to accomplish. You wanted to be Texas. You wanted to be Texas A&M. You wanted to get to Omaha. So you recruited four guys in summer league ball to come to TCU, <laughs> which I, I, it's a great story, right? And then when you get the round rock, you decide, this is what I want to do. This is what I want to build. We're going to deliver this in a year, which is virtually impossible. Okay. But you did it anyways. All right. You went above and beyond what you said you're going to do. You've brought the right people on and you're very intentional about the people you surround yourself with. Can you talk about that and how, how you identify and what it is you see in people that you know that you're going to gel with them and you know that it's going to work? Yeah. So the one thing I've always looked for is people that have a passion for the shared vision. 
And so in Round Rock, that vision really was, you know, customer service, let's deliver a great experience to the fans. What, what can we control? What we can't control is if the major league team drafts really good players and sends them to the minor league affiliate. But what we can control is the experience when people come in the door. So that's really what we started focusing on. And so I think the key has been, look, I want to find people that are, I'm, I'm a generalist. I need to find people that are experts in their field and that are really good at what they do and that have a passion for serving others. And so whether it's banking or whether it's baseball, big leagues, minor leagues, it's finding people that have that shared vision. I think the three things you can look at when you hire somebody is work ethic, their technical skill, and their attitude. And out of those three, if they don't have work, work ethic, you're really not going to teach it to them. They're not going to learn it. They either have it or they don't. And in baseball, you have to have that because we run a lot of crazy hours. Personality, if they're a glass half full, that's great. If they're a glass half empty, you're not going to turn them into a glass half full. So find somebody that's a glass half full that has a great work ethic. And then guess what? You can teach them anything. And so that's really what I've tried to do is, is move into these areas where I surround myself with positive people that know how to work hard. And we figure it out along the way. And that's what we've done. And as you're going through some incredible experience with Round Rock, Jackson's born, your first son. Mm-hmm. And just an amazing story he is. And he's doing remarkably well. And can you talk a little bit about that? Because you said a few things in some articles I read that were, were phenomenal. And it just defines who you are and who he's become and what your family represents. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so I've got three kids. My oldest son, Jackson, who is 20 today, was born with cerebral palsy. And my wife was college basketball player, Division One. We met at TCU. And so we're both kind of two type A personalities, college athletes. And, you know, you think, hey, we're going to have these kids and, you know, they're going to all be playing and college athletes and the whole deal. And then you end up, you know, what goes from the greatest moment of your life to the doctor saying, hey, there's something wrong. And we're not sure exactly what happened, but somewhere, you know, in utero, he had a a stroke. And just like an adult that has a stroke, you know, you have to relearn sometimes parts of your brain and how to do things. But when you're an infant, you don't have any history of coordination or how to use parts of your body. So it becomes hard. And he was what's called hemiplegic. And so cerebral palsy is basically a catch-all for brain injury. That's all it means. And he had one of the capillaries in his brain, and this is something like the size of a grain of sand, you know, that basically blocked one of his arteries for a minute and cut off, you know, oxygen and blood flow to a certain part of his brain. And so because of that, he basically is left-handed. His right hand is, he's very high functioning. He has uh, gross motor skills, but no fine motor skills. And on his foot, he was a real bad toe walker, couldn't put his heel down and really control some of the stuff in his leg. So fast forward 20 years, we have had multiple surgeries. We've taken him to Duke and had a stem cell that we saved from his core blood transfusion. We had a hyperbaric chamber, you name it. We tried it. And we just took the attitude with Jackson that like, look, everybody's got something, you know, I mean, I've got bad eyesight, you know, I'm. I don't have good hearing. Like everybody has something. There's no perfect person. The key is what do you do with what God's given you? And God's given you a gift. And I don't know what that is. You have to figure it out. And maybe it's because it's harder for you to do everything that maybe that gives you a determination that's going to make you go through the rest of life where other people quit. And we just drilled into him. You can do anything you want. There's you know, we're all different. And so he ended up playing 
you know, high school baseball, a couple years on the varsity. He ended up going to Division three school and, and pitching there, kind of like Jim Abbott. He throws and catches with the same hand. I mean, he played basketball, football. You name it, he played it all. That's awesome. And uh, today he's rocking and rolling. Um, he's coaching in the Texas Collegiate League. He's been working with the Royals, scouting. He's working, still going to school and working for an uh, app company that Tom House founded with some guys in California. So the kid is off and running and just doing great. And I think these lessons from sports, and it's why I tell as any young parents, get your kid into sports. Let them fail. Yes. Don't give them the participatory yes. trophy. Thank let you. Them Right. And let them bounce back and encourage right. them and let them right. fail again. Right. And that's what creates, you know, really thick skin and a grit that I think is important in life and not enough people have. You know, I watched an interview with him when he was in high school. By the way, he didn't have a bad high school coaching staff, did he? Yeah, no, he had Andy and Lance Burke. That's nothing short of stellar right there. But yeah. I was watching an interview with him. Had I closed my eyes? And listen to the interview, not knowing it was him, I would have thought it was you. He was talking like you. He was saying the same things as you. I mean, what an amazing job you've done as a parent. And literally, and he said in one of the interviews I watched, he said, I want to be on the other side of the game than my dad's and I want to be on the baseball side. I mean, he yeah. knew at a very early age what he wanted to do. And now here he is. And it's coming to fruition. Yeah, no, you know, and I said, that's the thing. One thing with Jackson is I said, look, you know, always be open-minded because I thought I wanted to do other things and then you end up changing. So it's okay to have a dream. Mm -hmm. But sometimes when you get there, you realize, hey, maybe it wasn't what I thought. And mm -hmm. I said, so, you know, if you like being on the road, if you like sitting in front of a computer by yourself for hours on end, if you like doing that and knowing that there's only 30 of these jobs, like, let's not just pick a profession that there's... You weren't trying to discourage them at all, were you? Yeah, let's pick a profession yeah. that there's only 30 jobs in yeah. the world. Um, so we'll see what happens. I, you know, he, lo he loves the, the GM side, the scout side. So we'll, we'll see where it goes. It's got to make you pretty proud, though, doesn't it? It does. Yeah. I mean, he's building a great resume. He's working hard. And, yeah. but like any parent, every time you see him, you're like, Hey, get your grades up. You know, so <laughs> can't let him off too easy yet. He's, he's not to the finish line. So we got we got a few more years of parenting to go. Hey, speaking of as a parent, you pitched against your dad, your freshman year when you were at Texas in an exhibition I game. And I, I can't even fathom what was going through your dad's head. Like I'm more of a, you know, of, I'd be, you know, like you said, like, forget it's dad. I want to win. You know, I want to walk off that mound with the lead and I want to win. But your dad had mentioned, it's a little bit nostalgic. The first few innings, he was distracted watching, you know, and he almost wasn't pulling for his teammates. He was pulling for his son and that yeah. whole parenting thing. And I, I grew up a coach's son. I'm very close to my father. How cool has it been? And not always easy, I'm sure, being in the same business as your dad and navigating those waters and evolving into, I mean, your name in baseball is amazing. And that whole evolution, what kind of experience has that been like? Well, you know what? My dad's been a great friend and a great mentor, and he's got a sort of Texas, you know, kind of country smarts about him that I think are very rare. And sometimes you have to listen for the nuggets. And so coming up in um, as a kid, I was a gifted baseball player, but I really wanted to be a basketball player. And a lot of that had to do with I wanted to do something different than my dad. And <clears throat> so um, I was a good enough player in high school, you know, three years on the varsity that I could have gone and played in college. And as I was getting recruited by colleges, they were a lot of the smaller schools. They weren't, you know, division one schools and they weren't places that I wanted to go. Nothing wrong with that. It would have been a great experience for basketball. But the flip side was I had people like Stanford in Texas calling me about baseball. 
And so one of the you know first kind of sit downs with my dad that he had was kind of going into my senior year where he said, look, he said, you do whatever you want to do. Don't play baseball because of me. But one, you haven't really put everything into baseball and look at the people that are reaching out to you. And you've put everything into basketball. And, you know, this is kind of where you are. You know, you're 6'2". And this is what you're going to have to work on. And by the way, if you do go to one of these schools, you know, you're going to miss Thanksgiving. You're going to miss Christmas. You're going to miss these things. And you're going to be with like 10 guys. And if you go to baseball and you're not going to have a future, you know, really professionally, but if you go to baseball and you commit yourself, there's a chance you'll get drafted and, and go play. And so at that point, I really said, you know, I need to do this. And so I was fortunate enough to get to go to Texas and, you know, didn't do great there because I was a little behind everybody else, but caught up for that at TCU. And then when I got drafted and got into pro ball, I thought, man, this is going to be easy. This is like easy. Well, you, you quickly realize the first year in pro ball, it's mainly you and all college kids, the same guys you've been playing against. The next year, you got everything from 16, 17-year-old Dominicans to guys that are almost 40, you know, to guys that couldn't get into college, to guys that are out of prison. I mean, you know, kid, all kidding aside, right. you've got this much bigger universe. And you realize, wow, there's a lot of really good baseball players out there. And so I was pretty kind of depressed as I got released. And my dad looked at me one day and said, look, he goes, look at everybody you played Little League with. Look at everybody you played high school, school ball with. Look at everybody you played college ball with. Look at everybody that was on your A-ball team. Like, you're a one percenter, you know. You, and I started looking around, and I was in the top one percent of baseball players that ever pick up a bat and a ball. Um, but to be a major leaguer, you know, you're a one-tenth of one percenter. And to be a Hall of Famer, you're one of 200 people ever to play the game of baseball. So it really put into perspective, like it's golf. It's like golf. You can't judge myself against my dad. It wouldn't be fair for Roger Clemens to judge himself against my dad. He, Roger had seven Cy Youngs, but he had no, no hitters. You know, my dad had seven, no hitters and no Cy Youngs. So Randy Johnson, whoever, just be your own person and just do the best you can do with what you've been given. And I look back and said, you know what? I not only did that, I maximized that, and I can hold my head high and walk away feeling good about what I did. And which you've absolutely done that. And when you look at the Round Rock Express, we talk about evolving, right? And you guys have done an amazing job there with Ryan Sanders, now sports and entertainment, correct? Yep. And you really evolved and you look at the turf business, you look at the food and beverage business, and you look at this crazy time that we're going through right now. How do you leverage that? How do you leverage the different lines of business that you have and you continue as you you know, you're an executive advisor uh, with the Astros and, and with Round Rock and you have these things going on. Where do you see the opportunity for you now? Yeah. So I think that's part of the, what I'm working on right now. I, I've looked at it like this. I owe it to myself to do the very best job I can for the Astros this season. And in the midst of the Corona virus pandemic, I owed it to Jim and to the club because look, this team's really good. They got a shot to win the World Series again this year to make sure we're doing everything we can do to put the best product on the field. And so that's been my focus. At the end of October, when the baseball season's over, uh, I'll really start to, to look at the next steps. But what's been beautiful about this arrangement I have with the Astros in this transition year has been I've slowly been getting back into all of our family businesses. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, hats off to my brother Reese Ryan and JJ Gotch and all of the folks in Round Rock, because when I left in 2013 to come here, we were really looking at how do we grow our business and what lines can we go into? And that's when we started the concession company 
that's when we started the turf company a guy named Garrett Redahays, who who's been with us. And, you know, since I've been here in Houston, that company has really taken off. We built the practice fields for the Super Bowl when it was in Houston at Rice and U of H. We've rebuilt the Cotton Bowl. We've rebuilt the TC football stadium, El Paso, you know, uh, you name it all over. We're working in Tampa Bay right now. We've put turf in and facilities from San Antonio to, you know, Sacramento all over the place. We've, we've done grass and it's the same playbook. Get good people and, you know, under promise, over deliver, have a good price and do what you say. And uh, I think there's a niche out there in the world for people to do that. So when you realize like the turf business was taking off, when did you like, okay, we've got to make this pivot or make this shift? Pivot's such a, a word that's used so much now, but we have to make this shift and really throw a lot of resources into this because this could be something special. How did you recognize that it really had a potential to be something so special? Well, when you look at like, what do we bring to the table? We have 20 plus years of operating with a, with a really good track record. And then we also have, which is the hardest thing to, to get, is trust. People trust us. When we say we're going to do something, my dad's entire career has been built on trust. My 20 years plus has been built on trust. And so it's how do you take those attributes and create lines of business that can be profitable for you and you can grow. And we originally started with teams. We started a second team in Corpus Christi, but it's just those teams are very capital intensive and you're limited on your upside. You only have 70 games. Uh, you can only own one team per league. So there's a lot of things that go into uh, kind of putting handcuffs on you with how far you can grow. And so we said, what are the businesses that are around these teams that we have that credibility in, that we can source really top-end talent, and that we can compete in this field? And we, we chose the concessions world, and we chose the turf management world, and that's where we've been growing over the last, you know, five, six years. That's amazing. And as, as we begin to wrap things up here, I want to talk a little bit about, you said something earlier that speaks to exactly the work we do here at the Molitor Group, and then I do with my executive coaching clients and my corporate clients. And he talked about people talk the talk all the time. Can they walk the walk? You know, do their words, values, and behaviors and their actions, do they actually align? And we speak into that with authenticity. And, and the way we break it down is authenticity into honesty, honest with yourself, with others, integrity, what we just talked about there, and then vulnerability. Can you talk a little bit about how those play into your world, the honesty, the integrity, and the vulnerability piece? You know, in other words, like you said, you're a generalist, and I look for people that are an experts in their field. And you you had this ability to ask for help, to, to help to try to find the answers, not act like you had the answers. How significant is that? And how did you develop that habit? You know, Ed, I think a lot of it comes back to baseball. And, you know, it truly is the ultimate team game. Okay, so if you're a football team, I mean, there's a lot of elements of you got to have a line, you got to have somebody to block. But if you're a really great running back and you're just physically more dominant than everybody on the team, you can actually run people over and keep going. Okay. If you're tall enough in basketball, you know, you could have people hanging on you, but you could, could put it down and score hundred points in a game like a Will Chamberlain did. But in baseball, you literally, you can be Nolan Ryan and throw hundred miles an hour. But if the catcher can't catch the ball, you strike everybody out, they're going to get the first, second, and keep scoring on you. If you throw a no-hitter but your team doesn't score any runs, you're not going to win. And so baseball, you're literally <clears throat> only as strong as your weakest link. And so I think that creates a vulnerability of, look, I can't do it on my own. I have to rely on others. And you have to be honest with yourself. What am I good at and what am I not good at? And what I've tried to do is it's a puzzle. I try to take my skill set 
and put it together with others and create an awesome puzzle. What I don't want is everybody to have the exact same skill set as me. And then we have nobody that ends up, you know, being able to do the other things that need to be done in the job. And so I need someone around me that is good with the details because I'm the vision person. And I used to say with the Astros, my job was to keep 12 plates spinning, but I need an expert on every one of those plates so that I can make sure it's spinning correctly. And so I think that's the key. Be honest with yourself, know what your strengths are, know what your weaknesses are. And then, you know, every day try to come in and get something accomplished. And that's what we've been able to do. I'm going to ask you a question completely unscripted because I didn't, I didn't think of this ahead of time, but I'm very curious as to how you would answer it. Uh, Being a person that's cut from the cloth you are and operates with the value system you have in your business, in any business, but people seem to look at professional sports and think it's, it's more prevalent there. You're going to deal with people that that lack the values or they lack the authenticity piece. And, And I believe that the way you treat people is a reflection of your character, not right? But how do you deal with when you're dealing in, in, in a big decision, a big money situation, whatever, big personnel situation, how do you continue to be you and help get to the decision that you need to be made and, and remain authentic when you deal with people who are, are full of it, so to speak? Yeah. So, so I think the hardest transition for me, and it was why this has been such a good growth opportunity. Every company that I've been involved with, I started, I was an owner in. And this is the first time that I've come into a situation with the Astros where I was a hired gun. And so when you're the entrepreneur, you set the tone for culture. When it's a family business, it's inner workings of family dynamics. But most of the time, the family business is set on a value set that has been laid down for generations. And so in this situation, I had people that either one, didn't have the same value set as me, or two, they realized at the end of the day, I'm president, but I'm not the owner and chairman of the board. Mm-hmm. And so you have people that will end up working around you and doing other things like that. And so I think the key is going back and saying, look, I'm not going to change. I'm going to continue to be who I am. And that through my actions, people are going to see that I'm authentic. And what I mean by that is in baseball today, you're seeing a, a big push of a lot of Ivy League, college-educated people that come from uber-competitive environments, sometimes outside of baseball. And in some of these competitive environments, it's a zero-sum game. And so my gain is going to be at your loss. And so there's a lot of that DNA coming into the sport today. And what I used to tell people is like, look, I want everyone to win. I want to win. I want my customers to win. I want the players to win because if everyone's winning, everyone feels better about themselves. Everybody feels better about what the group is doing. And so to me, I think that's where the rub is, is that if you find someone that all they're wanting to do is measure their bank account or all they're wanting to do is measure their title against other people. And, you know, they're competing in some game that I'm not even playing in. The game that I'm playing in is, you know, am I fulfilled inside with the work that I'm doing? And that work comes down to, am I bringing joy to people's lives? We all have to work, you know, 30, 40, 50 years, whatever that is. So it's not about getting from point A to point B. It's about enjoying the ride with the people that you're with. And if everyone that you work with, you're miserable being around them, then you probably need to be in a different situation. And so, As I've encountered those kind of push-pulls over the years, 
I've one been consistent or two, I've said, this is just part of me. This job isn't going to define me as who I am. What defines me as who I am is my family, is my faith, is my friend set, and is what I do for others. And that's what I've tried to do. And you and I both had those coaches that we'd run through the wall for, right? I mean, the level of trust that you build with your level of authenticity is, is amazing. Can you just real quick as we wrap it up, talk about how that drives the resiliency of your organizations, how that drives the resiliency of the people around you, and not just through this time, but through any adversity or any growth, uh, things like that. Yeah, I think people are willing to give you more if they know you care. If you truly care about someone as a human being, that when this job is over, we will be friends for life, or even if you don't have to be friends, but you'll have a mutual respect for life, or you'll have somebody that I know I can call on as a mentor, then they're going to go the extra mile because you've invested in them as a person and where they're going in their life. And really, I think at the end of the day, that's all any of us can ask for is somebody that actually is investing and cares about us as human beings. Well, I can't thank you enough, Reed. That is is powerful. That is, I mean, that's just phenomenal. It's going to be interesting to see how everything evolves in Major League Baseball. We didn't get into that. We don't need to get into that because you give our listeners so much. Is there anything you want to add before we wrap this up today in terms of things that uh, the Express might have coming up, uh, the Astros, just anything at all? Well, you know, I just think this is an interesting year, Ed, uh, with the coronavirus. Hopefully, we'll get through the, the Major League season right now. Unfortunately, it's really sad. The majors and the minors are, have been negotiating on a, on a new deal that's going to be in place for, uh, you know, hopefully many, many years to come. And this game does so much for communities and does so much for people that, boy, I hate, you know, it, it to be about greed and to be about control. And we end up, you know, choking the game off in the process. And so hopefully this, this coronavirus will get through this, will bring us some joy to some people. And going into the CBA with the players next year, hopefully all of this will, will be the bottom and we will start rebuilding this game. And that's really what my wish is. Well, I wish you all the best, Reed, and thank you so much again. Thank you for listening to The Athletics of Business. Be sure to give us a rating and review so we know how we're doing. For more information about the show, visit theathleticsofbusiness.com. Now, get out there, think, act, and execute at the highest level to unleash your greatness.